Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you all so much for being here tonight. Uh, it is an absolute honor uh, to be able to present God's Word tonight and share something um, with all of you. I just want to thank Pastor Paul, uh, Pastor Jim, and Israel tonight um, for this opportunity to speak. Um, so many of you have given me vital training to be able to do something like this, and so I just want to thank each and every one of you um, and I truly am excited uh, about this message tonight. Um, this really is my home church, right? I've been here since I was three years old. Um, I was a little preschooler, right, when I started out. And I uh, graduated from the high school. I've graduated from the college. And as Pastor Paul mentioned, I work uh, down within Grace on uh, the media department here. And I'm absolutely privileged to be able to do that. And um, growing up, um, if you guys have ever met my family, I'm honored to have them all here tonight, but we were always the J family, right? So I've got my dad, Jim, and my mom, Jill, and then I'm Jimmy, my brother, John, and then a year and a half ago, I kept it alive when I married my wonderful wife, Jenna. Uh, but then about three and a half months ago, we decided to change it up just a little bit, and we decided to go with a middle name with a J, and this is Malachi James Christensen. And you'll notice the spelling of his name, M-A-L-A-K-A-I. So a little bit different from the book of Malachi. Um, I keep telling him for the rest of his life, his name will be misspelled. But that's okay, right? And he is a wonderful addition to our family. Couldn't imagine life without him already. And I figured, you know, what better way to start than with cute little pictures of a baby, right? Can't beat that. And so he is about three and a half months old. And he is really my inspiration for my message tonight. Not so many people probably preach out of the book of Malachi. And when we were selecting names for him, when we finally came down to this one, I decided that, hey, I really got to study this and know it for myself. If I'm going to name my kid after it, right? And so even before Pastor Jim had asked me to speak, it's something that I dove into and studied and learned about. And it's something that I just want to share with all of you. And so we have him to thank for that. Um, but he's teaching me many, many new things. I'm learning how to change diapers, right? I'm learning how to um, value uninterrupted sleep. That's a big one right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm also learning how uh, much drool you can possibly get on your hands in one sitting. That's his brand new thing as of a couple weeks now. Um, and so I'm learning all sorts of new things. And as a new father... I haven't quite experienced this yet from the parenting side, but I do know that parents and kids fight all the time. I know I always did. Um, whether or not I should have been, I definitely was. And so I looked up a study, and it says that um, in an average year, there are 2,184 arguments per year between parents and kids. That's about six arguments per day for about 50 minutes a day of arguing. I thought that was pretty crazy. That's a lot. Um, sadly, um, many of the parents have decided that negotiation and compromise are the best answer to a kid's argument. And of course, what do kids want to argue about, right? They say that they don't have a messy room. Uh, maybe they don't want to eat a healthy food. Or they just don't want to do something that they're supposed to do because they'd rather do what they want to do. And... Um, I think negotiation and compromise will keep them quiet, um, but in the end, you're just giving them exactly what they want, and they're probably not really learning anything from it. And so I'm thankful that my parents did not take this approach with me, because there are lessons to be learned in each and every argument. 
Um, I'm also thankful that our Heavenly Father does not allow this to happen with us. We may not always agree with what he tells us to do, uh, but we're never going to get anywhere by arguing with him about it. And so tonight we're going to take a quick look at the entire book of Malachi. Uh, And this prophet performed the difficult task of rebuking the nation of Israel for their sins. And these sins are not exclusive to them. These are things that can happen to us today. And so uh, as we read Malachi tonight, I pray that it's so much more than just an ancient history book for you. And although you could pull tons of stuff from the book, I kind of want to break it up uh, into seven big picture lessons that we can learn from his teachings. And some of the lessons might seem to be about different topics that are disconnected, but I think they're all good reminders that we need to remain faithful in many different areas of our lives. And so before we get into each lesson, I always like to know, hey, exactly where am I at, right? So let's do a little bit of an overview. So there's one thing that everybody knows about Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Beyond that, usually people get a little confused. It's only four chapters with 55 verses. And while it is short, it's probably not the easiest book you've ever read because it's a dialogue. And it's a dialogue between the nation of Israel and the prophet Malachi. And so if you look to the verse sheet tonight, you're probably going to say, wow, that is a ton of verses. But don't worry, it's not all 55. I put in parentheses next to each point, the full verses for each point. Um, but we'll just cover some of the key ones as we go through it tonight. And so on this timeline, we can see that Malachi was, of course, the last minor prophet as well. And these prophets were minor uh, only in terms of the size of the book. Their messages are still of major importance. And they should each teach us something that we need to learn. And so this period spans roughly about 450 years here. And we're not exactly sure when he wrote, but our best guess that it is 432 BC. I would say that because in 538 BC was when we know that Cyrus issued a decree for the Jews to come back and rebuild the temple. They finished that temple in 515 BC. And Malachi wrote about corruption of temple sacrifices, meaning that there had to be a temple. And his concerns mirror those of Nehemiah, who we do know when he spoke, and uh, which suggests that when Nehemiah leaves the city for a couple of years in 432 BC, that that's when Malachi began to preach. And so let's talk about Malachi himself. Now, this is the last prophet heard from until John the Baptist appeared in the gospel 400 years later. And not really much is known about him. We only know one thing. His name means my messenger or God's messenger. Because he left out any other information about himself. He didn't give us his father's name. He didn't give us the leader of Israel. Um, but the important thing about messengers is the message that they bring, not who they are or where they came from. And so as an overall theme, Malachi offers a glimpse into the hearts of Israelite men and women, members of a nation that had been specifically chosen by God, yet they veered off the path. And at the time of Malachi, well over a thousand years after Abraham's era, the Israelites had the advantage and weight of history on their side. They could see shining rewards of faithfulness and punishment that came from disobedience even to the point of being uprooted from their own lands. But even then, with all that perspective, the book of Malachi teaches us that they still decided to stray from the Lord's path. And so they needed God's intervention as much as ever. 
And so this book is a final statement of judgment in the Old Testament, anticipates God's saving work through the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, Malachi and his contemporaries give us a really low spiritual condition of Israel. And although we're not told where Malachi was from, or even when God called him into service, his message was clear and needed by God's people. And so, though the temple had been rebuilt, the fervor of the early returning Israelites gave way to a thorough apathy of the things of the Lord. And this led to rampant corruption in the priesthood and a spiritual slumber among the people. And so, it sounds to me like God's chosen people are struggling and losing many people to the ways of the world. And I say to myself, we're no different today. In fact, many of the same conditions of Malachi's day exist right now. And so my prayer is that tonight we could learn these seven lessons from his message to help us be real for God in our day and listen rather than argue when he calls out our shortcomings. And so with that, let's jump into the points. Number one tonight is remember God's love. And we'll start right at the beginning, Malachi 1, 1 through 5. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein has thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return, saith the Lord of hosts. They shall build it, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. And so I think Malachi's message begins where every departure from God begins, in the heart. The people of Judah had lost appreciation of God's love for them, and they should know better, because Moses had already told them before. And that's why they need to remember God's love. In Deuteronomy, it says, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. Above all people that are upon the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of them all. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And this is not the one and only time that they were told God loved them. I could pull out a million examples, but here's one more. In Jeremiah 31, it says, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. So God had clearly demonstrated his love for them. He chose them over Esau's descendants. He helped them return and build in desolate places. And he allowed them to see his greatness. All that. And they still questioned, hey God, where did you love us again? Man, that's tough, right? But sadly, sometimes I'm the same way. My heart can easily grow callous to God's love for me. If I begin to lose sight of his great love for me, I'll slowly be attracted to other things. It's what happened in Ephesus, right? In Revelation 2, it says that they were left their first love. So many other things had crept in that their affections 
for Christ were gone. It's exactly what happened to Judah in Malachi's day. And as they were looking for material blessings as proof of God's love, they became blind to all he had done for them. As Christians, we have to let the word of God constantly refresh our hearts as to his great love for us. And so as a result of losing sight of God's love, they began to forget the greatness of God and despise his name. And so point two tonight is to respect God. Respect God. In Malachi 1, 6 through 2, 9, he shifts focus and now directs his message to the priests who should have taught the people to honor God's character and his reputation, but instead they counted these things of little value. They're supposed to be living exemplary lives, but in reality, they're guilty of breaking the very law that they were meant to obey and teach. And so let's see what the first verse says here. Verse six, a son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? And so you actually find the phrase, my name, used eight times in this portion of chapters one and two. Of course, referring to God's name and character. And the Lord's name is so important because it sets forth all that he is. His attributes, his deity, his majesty. And so Malachi is using this phrase to convict the priests that they were neglecting all these attributes. And they still argued back and said, well, what have we done wrong, right? And so Malachi has some answers for them. And he comes down hard. He gives them two things right away. In Malachi 1, 7 and 8, and says, Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? And that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind some sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor, will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. And so it says right there that they're offering sick and lame animals, something that they wouldn't even feel comfortable to give to their own governor. So how dare they give them to the Lord? But before we come down too hard on them, let's examine our own lives. Are there any areas where we're giving the Lord the leftovers? Do we count his name of little value? It's easy to give him Sunday and maybe Wednesday night during the week. But Romans 12 says that we are to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto him every day of our lives. And sometimes it's easy to forget that each part of our lives should be consistent with his name and the attributes that accompany it. Now, that wasn't Malachi's only issue with the priests. He had a lot to say. Um, But secondly, they were taking the best and leaving it for themselves. And they were despising the very privilege of even being a priest, of being a representative of God. And I think they lost sight of that. They lost sight that this was a ministry so much more than just a job. And this led them to deny his law. And unfortunately, that same thing can happen to me today. Thankfully, in Malachi 2, 5 through 7, we're given six essential characteristics for anyone who desires to be a faithful representative of God. And they come in really quick. So I want to see if we can spot them all. 
My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did not turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And so I know I said we're not gonna dive too far into too many things tonight, but I couldn't pass these six things up because we all wanna be a good representative of God. And so I found these six things in that passage. And so let's just break them down really quick. In order to be a good representative of God, first, we should have a reverential fear of him. If it's lost, our light's going to grow dim. We'll have little effect for him in a dark world. Second, we need to know and proclaim the truth. In 2 Timothy, we're encouraged to present ourselves diligently as workers who don't need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. And of course, we're always told to preach the truth. Third, we're to have obedience in our walk with God and to flee from sin entirely. Fourth, we're to walk with God daily in his word and in prayer and have fellowship with him. And fifth, we should point others to Christ, not to ourselves. The priests were way too wrapped up in themselves to see that one. Sixth and finally, we must never forget that just like Malachi, we are messengers of the Lord. And so the priests of Malachi's day unfortunately failed in all six of these areas. And they dishonored God, but it says not only that, they caused others to stumble as well. And that's something that I never want my life to do. And so Malachi said, that it would be better to close the doors of the temple than to continue in this hypocrisy. And so I have to ask myself, when the world looks at me, what do they see? Am I a hypocrite? Am I causing people to stumble? Am I respecting God and doing his will? I pray that the Lord helps me to grow in my respect for who he is and what he's called me to do. And I know that was a long point, but we'll move on to point three from there to reevaluate our faithfulness, reevaluate our faithfulness. And so finally, we're done with the priests because believe me, he had a lot to say about them. And Malachi now challenges the whole nation to reevaluate their own faithfulness to God through two examples of earthly relationships. Malachi 2.10 says, Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. And so first he points out that they're treating one another treacherously. Of course, we know that's deceitfully, wickedly, unfaithfully. He reminds them of the common relationship that they've brought into and how untrue they're being to it. And I think sometimes as Christians, we too need to be reminded of that common relationship we have in Christ as brothers and sisters. Ephesians 4, 25 and 32 says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And so we can be just as guilty of dealing treacherously with one another in our own lives, in our own church, as the people of Malachi's day. And we need to remain faithful to God in our relationships with each other. 
As I mentioned, he gave two examples. And so the second example is in our marriage relationships. Malachi confronts the men of the nation about divorcing their wives and marrying ungodly women. Malachi 2.11 says, Judah hath dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved and hath married the daughter of a strange God. And he right away calls this sin treachery as well. In fact, treacherously appears five times in chapter two alone. These men were breaking their vows to God by treating their wives as nothing. And it can happen in so many places today. I mean, look at our society. They treat the marriage relationship with no value, right? Malachi reminded them to stay with their wives because marriage is a covenant relationship before God. As I was studying marriage, I found this from the United Nations, which I know is a very much not a biblical source. And they describe the family as the natural and fundamental unit of society and the nucleus of civilization. And so if they can see that, then as a church, we better be able to see that, right? Because strong families begin with strong marriages. A man and a woman who love each other, who work each for the other, but both for the Lord. And so we should reevaluate our relationships today, both to each other and in our marriages. And we need to make sure that we are faithful in thought and word and deed. And so that leads me to point four tonight, which is respond to God's justice. Respond to God's justice. And I think of the seven, this one was the most convicting for me. And I had to ask myself, how do I respond to the ways of God? Do I question the way that he works in my life? Um, do I argue with him or rationalize my own sin by saying, oh, it's not even, is that a sin? It's like a borderline sin, right? Or, oh, I'm doing better than that guy over there, right? So I must be okay. Well, Malachi continues to challenge the people about this very thing in the final verse of chapter two. He says, you've wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have ye wearied him? When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? And so here we go again, more questioning right out the gate again. And so the people of Malachi's day actually wearied God with their skeptical and cynical attitudes. And I don't know about you, but that's something I never want to do. And they said, hey, God, listen up. We built your temple. We came back to your land and we restored your worship. And there's a lot of problems with those statements, right? And then they go on and say, why do you let everybody around me prosper and you never bless me? And <laughs> I think they should probably double check the terms of their covenant with God. Um, pretty sure he said, hey, could you guys like believe in me and trust in me? And we've already seen that they don't love them. They divorce their wives. They marry pagan women. They offer defiled sacrifices. They rob God of the best. And then they have the guile to demand to be blessed. <laughs> um, but before I blame them, I have to ask myself, how many times do I say, hey, God, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? And uh, deep down, I know I'm not giving them my best 100% of the time. 
And I have to come to the realization that if I continue to justify myself and blame God for my circumstances, then we're just going to keep arguing. I'm never going to learn. But I have to remember that God says his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not my ways and his ways are higher than mine. So who am I to argue with him? Well, maybe I won't argue with him anymore, but the Jewish people kept doing it. (laughs) And so at the end there, they asked and said, hey, where is the God of judgment? We've never seen him. And so he says, fine, I'll give you two messengers, two foreshadowings about it. And they're found in chapter three, beginning in verse one. It says, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And of course, we know the one who prepared the way for Jesus was John the Baptist. He had the unique privilege of preaching at both the end of the Old Testament and the start of the new. And how does he answer the question about God's judgment? He points Israel straight to him as the Lamb of God. And how did Jesus become the Lamb of God? He died on the cross, paid for our sins, and satisfied God's justice. Chapter one continues, or chapter, or excuse me, verse one of chapter three continues into two and three and says, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that he may offer unto the Lord an offering and righteousness. And so the second messenger he mentions is the Lord himself. But he doesn't talk about him coming in 400 years. He talks about his second coming to reign as king of kings. He's gonna come one day to purify an unprepared and unclean nation. And in that day, the Lord Jesus will come with an unsparing judgment against all that is unrighteous. And so I'll ask again, what does this have to do with responding to God's justice? I think Malachi is reminding the people that God has a program that we can't always see. He knows the big picture and we get caught up in the moment. And sometimes we only see one snapshot at a time. And so when questions come, we need to remember that God is God. He has a plan and he doesn't change. Neither do his plans, love, grace, or holiness. And so Malachi has thoroughly proven to the Israelites that God is just. And so now he wants to discuss with the people that they're unjust in the way that they've been robbing God of things that rightfully belong to him. Point five tonight is refuse to rob God. Refuse to rob God. And there are many ways that we could do this. We could rob God of what is rightfully his. While our time, talents, and tithes all belong to him, Malachi chose to challenge the people on the subject of tithes. He begins with an appeal to the people of Israel to return to the Lord. And once again, you guessed it, they argue. Verses seven through nine say, Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with the curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. And so everybody knows what a tithe is, right? 10% of fruit, grain, animals, money, whatever you had. 
at the time. And so at this time, they had storehouses in the temple to put those tithes into. And so this was always an act of worship. This was nothing new. And these people knew that when you hold back your tithe, you are robbing God of worship. And I think a good principle is that whenever we rob God, we always rob ourselves. And Malachi showcases that principle with a huge promise of blessing in the next verses. He says, bring ye the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. My, my, that is a promise of blessing. If believers under the old covenant brought their tithes, then how could I as a believer under the new covenant do anything less? If I gave according to the grace that I've received, my giving should go way beyond 10%. If I'm holding back, I'm robbing myself of a blessing that God promises me and wants to share with me. And remember, giving is an act of faith, right? God rewards that faith in every way. These blessings may not be material, but remember that God is no man's debtor and we can never outgive God. And so that brings me to point six tonight, which is my final accusation, but not my final lesson. And that's re- re- um, reject the temptation to complain. And I found a unique perspective I wanted to share with you because I thought it encapsulated it really well. When you've exhausted all other paths, one of the easiest things to do is complain. It takes no talent or gifts to criticize others. One word of complaint has a great impact on all those around us. Throughout Israel's history, even with all the blessings that they had received, they always found something to complain about. And it's another lesson that these people still needed to learn. And so when their arguments failed, they turned to the last thing they had, complaining. Their complaints are found in verses 13 through 15. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? You said it's vain to serve God. What profit is it? Have we kept his ordinance that we've walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. And so it's a sad place to be. They felt it was useless to serve God. They said, what's in it for me? And sometimes I can feel the same way. And I hope if that's you tonight, that you can say that you could treat church like a bank because you're not gonna get anything out of it unless you put first put something into it. And so as we talked about with tithes, we serve God because it's the right thing to do, not because we're going to be rewarded, but we know we will be rewarded. And so Malachi gives us three tips to help us avoid being um, a complainer in today's world. And all three, I'm just going to give them to you really quick. Fear the Lord, speak often one another about Christ. I'll give you less time to complain and meditate on his name. And I think it's interesting that the first one is fear the Lord because it was the same reason to respect God. And so only in Jesus, by meditating on his name, can we find something worthy of praise. And so speaking of praise, point seven tonight is to rejoice in that coming day, rejoice in that coming day. 
And if you're like me, you're like, wow, this has been really encouraging, Jimmy. Thanks a lot. You've just been telling me a bunch of things that are really annoying and really hard to hear. And that's exactly what Malachi said, right? He said, hey, you're falling short in this area. And the people came back and said, no, I'm not. I'm going to argue. I'm going to do it again and again and again. But in verse 16, we read that there was a group of true believers in the crowd. They honestly wanted to do the Lord's will and edify one another. It says that, then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. I'm going to guess their assembly probably wasn't large. They may have thought they were accomplishing very little, but God was paying attention. Their neighbors may have laughed at them, but they weren't wasting their time because they were investing in eternity. And so the seventh and last lesson that Malachi, Malachi teaches is to look forward to Christ's return. In verse four, uh, chapter four, verse two, it says, but unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. You shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. And as the son of righteousness, the Lord Jesus is Israel's hope. During this time, the Lord will return and reign as king of kings in his second coming. And the church, all of us, will reign with him. Every Christian can look forward to this day and rejoice because in the end, we're on the winning side. And so Malachi's message went straight to the heart of the problem and challenged the people to examine their own lives. And I think it would be wise for us to do the same thing today. And so I've turned our statements into questions and I need to ask myself, do I remember God's love? Will I respect God? Should I reevaluate my faithfulness? How do I respond to God's justice? Can I refuse to rob God? And when will I reject the temptation to complain? Because in all honesty, all God wants is reality. And our love to him, our worship of him, and our service for him. And so God's desire for his people of any generation is that our lives honor him in all that we do so that we can rejoice in that coming day. And as I close tonight, I'd like to end with the very last verse in the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 6. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And it may seem odd that this is the last word in the Old Testament, but I think it's very fitting because that faithful remnant in Malachi's day They were waiting for the Messiah that hadn't come yet. They were waiting for the one that would free them from the curse of sin. And the most important lesson that I could ever share with anyone tonight is that that Savior did come. His name was Jesus. He lived a perfect life, but he died a cruel death on the cross to pay for that curse of sin for you and for me. And all we have to do is believe that three days later, he rose from the dead to pay for that sin and believe in him for our salvation. Believe in him in order to go to heaven. Our favorite verses, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so if you haven't done it before, I want you to be on God's team. I want you to be on the winning side. And I pray that you would trust in him as the only way that you can get to heaven. Once you've done that, 
you're a child of God. And once you've done that, you can take hold of the great promises found in the book of Malachi. And so let's remember that you can't argue with God because nobody can afford to argue with God the way that the Israelites did when they heard Malachi because God will always have the last word. So my prayer for you is that last word will be salvation rather than judgment.